Well, friends, it's a privilege to come here and be with you all. Um, on behalf of Crossway, we just want to say grace and peace to you. Um, your church that we think about and pray for often, man, it's awesome to come down here, see y'all, and hear stories about what God is doing in and through his church down here, through y'all. It's a beautiful thing. Um, it is a privilege to preach God's word to you, and my heart is that you would go away encouraged to grow in your faith today. We're going to look at First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. So read with me, then we'll pray and jump in. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation are ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every time we gather as your people and hear your word, God, you aim to work. You aim to convict, to build, build our faith, to change us. God gives us ears to hear and eyes of faith. God, be with the preaching and believing of your word, we pray. Amen. There are two common misunderstandings of discipleship that will always lead to a weak faith. The first misunderstanding 
is that very often we don't understand just how new we are in Jesus. Scripture makes it clear if we know Jesus, we have new life by His Spirit. Very often we lose sight of that. Misunderstanding number two, Peter followed Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus' miracles. He heard Jesus' claims and teaching about his kingdom. He was there the night, or at least heard of it, when Jesus had the conversation with Nicodemus that you must have new life in order to be a part of his kingdom here. Jesus' sermon on the mount about his kingdom, this new humanity that he was creating, this new kingdom with new values. And man, Peter wanted in on that. But Peter's a lot like us. He expected that he could follow Jesus on his own strength. And man, we read about those blunders, failure after failure of his own self-reliance. And not only that, Peter expected that God's kingdom, his inheritance, his salvation would come immediately. But it didn't. And in fact, when Jesus went to his death, and faith become foggy and hard, Peter bailed on Jesus. But Jesus forgives weak disciples. And that's Peter's story. And he saw Jesus rise from the dead. And Jesus left him on a hill with the ten other disciples looking up in the clouds, and Peter suddenly became aware that all Jesus promised was his by faith, but it wasn't his fully yet. And then in Acts 2, he saw the new life that those in Jesus' kingdom has lives overhauled for God's glory. And this man spent his whole life pastoring in the already not yet tension of the fact that he was really saved, but he was not yet with the Jesus that he loved. And our context, the contexts to which he writes are scattered Christians through persecution. They left their homes. They lack clarity in their faith. They forgot they were new. Forgot for, about the heaven for which they were bound and they were really tempted, just like Peter, to tap out. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them that the really new and the not yet tension of living in a fallen world, God was using to refine 
their faith. They needed this passage, and we need this passage. Two years of trial, weak faith, we forget we're new, and we forget that we're bound for heaven. Let's let Peter encourage us. Three points in this passage. You were born again and bound for heaven. God is refining your faith so that you make it to Jesus, and it's working. First point, you were born again and bound for heaven. Peter begins with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has caused us to be born again. Peter is praising God for regeneration. That God the Father gives us new life by his Spirit on the basis of Christ's resurrection. Why does God do that? Because of his great mercy, his mercy, his goodness to those that are hopeless. It's God's inclination to take his enemies bound under sin as we are spiritually dead and lifeless and give us life in Jesus by His Spirit to open up our eyes to our sin and our need to be saved of Christ's sufficiency, His work on the cross, and through His resurrection and the life that He then offered. According to Jesus, our status is that we are born again, and this changes everything. You got to talk about this in Ephesians 2, where God is taking spiritually dead people and making them spiritually alive. That by nature and by choice, we are spiritually dead in Adam. But by the Spirit, through faith, we now have life in Jesus. That God, through his mercy, again, as Paul even writes, he made us alive together in Christ. And man, we love Ephesians, don't we? Because it's a book about grabbing hold of what's ours through faith and living that out together as God's people. The emphasis of Ephesians is the already aspect of our faith, that it's here, that it's now, let's walk it out together. But Peter looks beyond that. It's the emphasis of the already not yet aspect of our faith that Peter is pointing to beyond what's here and now. We're, we're born again to a living hope. Something beyond us. Something that we have not yet arrived at. He's saying that our new life in Christ ensures our future salvation. Our hope is living because Jesus is alive in heaven. 
It's been accomplished, but not only that, we're bound for a life with him because the Spirit has made us new. I was at the park yesterday afternoon with Laura, my wife, and my boys, and there was this person flying this drone around really annoying like the whole entire time, super loud, like praying it hits a tree. Anyway, <laughs> I, I think with these new drones, something that's amazing about them is when they are about to run out of batteries, they have a homing beacon. They just go back to where the person is who is driving it. Because we are born again through the resurrection, in our new nature, we have spirit-wrought hope. We have a home and beacon towards heaven where Jesus awaits us. Whether we think it or not, or believe it or not, according to Peter, by the new life we have, by the Spirit, we are bound for heaven, bound for Jesus. And not only that, we are born again to a living hope, but to an inheritance. In modern times, we think of that as a fund account, dollar size. But in the Old Testament, our inheritance, and particularly Israel's, was a place, a status, a life. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. In Jesus, in fact, in Matthew, in all the Gospels, picks up on this kingdom language that the life, the inheritance that he offers to those who turn to him in faith is a life with God, in God's place, under God's rule. And Peter knows this and says, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Why? Because Jesus is there. When we see Jesus face to face, we'll gain our inheritance. Because everything he has and earns will be ours, not through faith, but by sight, fully and forever. His righteousness Absolute freedom from sin, freedom to do what we were made for, adopted into God's family as sons, as Jesus is. It's kept for you in heaven, your inheritance. And I love these three words. He says our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's imperishable, meaning it's free from decay. It's permanent. Why? Because Christ's work is done. It's undefiled. You can't mess it up. Why? Because it's based off his righteousness, not your righteousness. It's unfading. 
can't be worn out over time because he's eternal and he won't change and he keeps his promises. And as amazing as all of that is, what awaits us our living hope. Peter just piled one more thing on. He reminds us that not only is our inheritance being kept for us in heaven, we are being kept for it. He says, who by God's power are being guarded for a salvation or this inheritance which is ready to be revealed. It's made, it's built, it's packed. The label's on, it's about to be shipped. When you see Jesus, there's nothing to wait for. It's done, it's kept in heaven for you, and you are being guarded for it. This illustration of an army around an encampment where nothing could get in, but nothing could get out either. How does he guard us? Through our faith. Through our faith. Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith clings to the reality of our future hope in Jesus. And it lives out that reality in the here and now as we wait. Ephesians 2a, Paul makes it clear that faith is a gift of the new birth, but we are called to continue in it. We walk by faith and not sight. And therein lies the problem. Because very often, this side of heaven, we feel the dissonance between who we are and the actual life in front of us. We walk by faith and not by sight. But God is guarding us for salvation by initiating and energizing and sustaining our faith by refining it through trials. And Peter moves from God's mercy to give new life and power to guard us for salvation to his providence in how he does that. Point number two, God is repentant finding your faith so that you make it to Jesus. God is refining your faith so that you make it to Jesus. Peter is a realist. He's not pie in the sky. He gets the dissonance of really knowing God but walking in a fallen world, and he's speaking to the recipients of this letter and to us. He says to them and acknowledges that now, currently, they are grieved by various trials. They're displaced, persecuted, no longer have home or roots or security. Grief circumstances that lead to deep 
soul consternation, pain, agony, anguish, life in a broken world, a world that actually is perishable, that nothing this side of heaven is certain. And we'll always deal with the effects of the fall. It is defiled. Sin and its effects are all around and all within. We have this spiritual schizophrenia, Galatians 5, between our spirit and our flesh. And nothing delivers. Nothing brings ultimate joy and satisfaction, no matter how hard we try. See, Peter knows real suffering and real pain. I mean, Peter must have wrestled with that. Think about it. You follow Jesus, you hear the wonders of his kingdom, only to see what he did, and then he leaves you in a broken and fallen world <laughs> to care for his broken people. Really made new, and yet lots of issues, lots of heartache, a lot of pain. Peter knew what it was like to suffer. Here's my question. Which trials grieve you today? You just have a soul-deep consternation in your heart because of circumstances. Relational brokenness, dash hope, illness, the consequences of your sin or others' sin. Where does the dissonance of the already not yet impinge upon your soul today? That's Peter's question. And he moves to, through illustration, explain the purpose of those trials. That God's actually working providentially through them to refine our faith. Peter pictures God in verses 6 through 8 as the goldsmith. And our faith is the gold that he refines. Our trials as the heat that he uses. See, when purifying gold, what you do is take gold in its usual form. You put it in a crucible and you put it in an oven. And we ain't cranking this thing up to 225. It goes to almost 2,000 degrees. And what happens is that gold that seems so solid melts to be liquid. And impurities then come out of that. And wise goldsmith would do that and scrape that off the top, heat it up again, only to purify this over and over, more refined for the goldsmith's purposes. This is the purpose of your trial, friend. To smelt our faith and bring out the unbeliefs in our heart to purify our faith. And it's a calculated process. Remember, God's a God of mercy. 
Everything he does is for your good. He says, if necessary. The God's not capricious. Just doling out trials here and there, but God is at work providentially in a calculated way through the Spirit to use trials on the outside and God's Spirit on the inside to convict your heart and bring out your need for Christ so that your faith perseveres to the end. But it won't happen forever. Because one day, that faith will be made sight, which is why Peter says, this is only a speck of time on the line of your existence. For a little while, God will use trials to refine your faith. Very often, as we face trials, our first instinct is to get out from under what's going on, right? We all know this. To use our own wisdom or power to circumvent pain, right? It's kind of like my little boy Jude is two years old, loves walking around. Problem is he walks towards the street a lot. Little dude has an agenda in the street all the time for whatever reason. And I go and I grab him. And at first he's really mad because I'm getting in the way of his agenda. But then he knows he needs to deal with me. Very often we seek to just get out from under our trials. But when they weigh in on us, God's bringing out impurities, and the purpose is that we would engage with him over our faith, because he's seeking to purify us. Our trials reveal our unbelief. It reveals where our faith and our love is in something other than Jesus, Reveal our false identities, our false saviors, our false hopes. In the trials that you experience, what has your attention more? The fire or the goldsmith? One thing that's interesting to me about this analogy is that just as fire can't destroy real gold, but only refining trials cannot destroy real spirit-wrought faith, but only refining. And brother and sister, if you are here in a harsh trial, God means to refine your faith, not crush it, but there will be moments where it doesn't seem solid, seems liquid. And what you're aware of is the impurities of your own heart, so much so that you wonder if your faith is, in fact, real faith. But if God's in your heart, 
If he's challenging you and convicting you, it means you've been made new. You're bound for heaven. It means that God is saving you for the salvation yet to be revealed. God has his finger on things in your life so that your faith, when you see Jesus, might be found to result in praise and honor and glory for God and for you. Do you understand that you'll be rewarded for your faith? That's an incredible thing because none of it comes from us, nor is it deserved, but God in his mercy and his kindness seeks to reward us for that. Well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, which means that God is founding and sustaining and energizing and perfecting our faith. And then we get there and see him, and he's like, hey, you did a good job. Thanks for staying in there. And we're like, no, 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 you don't get it. Glory gets back to you because I'm here. And you, you kept me. You kept me. Dealing with God over our faith is the whole of the Christian life. God uses trials to refine our faith so that we make it to heaven. We actually see this very same argument made in Psalm 66 by Old Testament Writers, He said, bless our God, O people, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us, and you have tried us like silver. And, by the way, the life of faith, through trials, it's Jesus' very path. So why would we expect anything different? Point number three, it's working. It's working. Paul and, and Peter, an incredible pastor, don't just say God's doing this. He points them to God's work in them. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter had seen him. He hadn't seen him in his glory. His faith had not yet been made tonight, but he knew Jesus. They hadn't even seen Jesus. But the Spirit made him new and gave him faith. And God was using those trials to refine their faith. The men, they loved Jesus more because of it. The mark of true growing faith is a growing love for Jesus, a longing to be with him. Peter continues, though you do not see him, you believe in him. 
and rejoice with joy inexpressible. But get this, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's a beautiful phrase. It means that what's ahead for us then, we can live in the good of now by faith. We rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. It doesn't make sense in this fallen world. Joy isn't just a feeling, but it's a settled rest in Christ and hope for His inheritance. And according to Peter, if joy is growing in your soul, if you're more deeply in love with Jesus, then God's not just theoretically at work. He has worked. And it is working. He is working in you. God gave you faith. He's refined your faith. And you love and live for Jesus now. And it's like a down payment of hope. A taste of what's to come. When you see Jesus face to face, and the object of your faith is right in front of you. All he is becomes yours. We get to live in the good of that now through faith. And God's working in that. Friend, I would just send you away with two things. I think there's some of you here so just lambasted by your trials. You're forgetting to deal with the goldsmith. And I would say, sit down with him. Pour out your heart to him. <laughs> Wrestle with him. Get a brother or sister to do that with you. There's some of you here with weak faith. But it's not your strength that gets you there is God himself. And today, through his word, is another invitation to deal with him. To come to him. To come to Jesus, who is gentle and lowly. To come to a father who's merciful. Who means to keep you till you see Jesus. That's correct. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Pray that you would do your work in us. God, to refine our faith. God, I, I pray that, God, this coming week, people would have encounters with you. God, that you would take our eyes off the horizontal and get them on you vertically. God, that you would comfort us, that you would change us, that you would keep us to the end. Your name. Amen.